Acts chapter 4, look, I'm so excited you guys are going through the book of Acts because the book of Acts is, is a powerful book. It's an amazing book. Um, it's a beautiful book. And it, and it is all of those things because we serve a powerful, amazing, and beautiful God. Amen? And I want you guys to just recall to mind the truth of this, that what we're going to read about and what you're going to go through in the book of Acts, these things actually took place. Do you understand? These things actually took place. Like the events, the miracles, the healings, you know, the persecution, these are historical events. These things took place in the first century early church. Really, the book of Acts is God beginning to build his church. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's a beautiful record of God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Because our God is extraordinary. And so tonight, I want to encourage you with this. God can use you to do extraordinary things. He can use you, your life, to do extraordinary things. The men and women here in this book, the men we're going to read about in this passage, Peter and John, there's really nothing special about these guys other than they are filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and they're used by God to do extraordinary things. And in this book, we see the early church begins with a few hundred people, and then it rapidly starts to multiply and multiply and multiply as God begins to build his church. And listen, the key to Acts, the key to understanding the book of Acts is in chapter 2. The key to understanding the book of Acts is in chapter 2. And if you walk away with anything tonight, this is what I want you to walk away with. The key to understanding the book of Acts begins in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit of God falls upon the men and women who were gathered in the upper room. That is what the key to Acts is. And that is when the tongues of fire, right? We all have heard this story before. The tongues of fire, it appears on their heads and they receive power. And it was a fulfillment of something that Jesus told them would take place in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when he said, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power. And the beautiful truth about the book of Acts is this, that fire never went out. It went from their head, went from appearing on top of their heads in the upper room to burning inside of their hearts. Many women filled with the Holy Spirit, many women filled with with Jesus filled with the Spirit of God and on fire for Jesus. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And the men and women in this book, they were submitted to the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. They were empowered by the Spirit. And they were led by the Spirit on fire for Jesus. And guys, here, here's the thing. This life is available to you and I. This very life these men and women live, it's available to you and I. We have every opportunity to live lives just like these men and women in the book of Acts. God still works. God still uses people to reach people, and he wants to use you. Because remember, as I said a few moments ago, it begins with us recognizing our great need for the Holy Spirit's power and guidance. Everyone say, our great need. Everyone say, our great need. Because the beautiful thing is that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He does. He always has. He always will. So when we come to chapter 4, what's going on? What's going on when we come to chapter 4? Well, in chapter 4, 
we see really the first wave of persecution that the early church will face begin. So in chapter 4, the first wave of persecution that the early church is going to face, it begins. Peter and John are our main characters here. And they're brought before what I'm going to call the Jewish Supreme Court. Everyone say the Jewish Supreme Court. So they're kind of brought before this Jewish Supreme Court that didn't really exist, but I'm just summarizing because I don't want to say all the names. But anyways, they're basically brought before the, the most important Jewish religious leaders of the day, and they are questioned. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus actually prepared his disciples for this very moment. He spoke of this moment in Matthew chapter 24. He spoke of it in John chapter 15. And what he's saying to his disciples before he left and ascended to heaven is this. Look, you're going to face persecution. The Christian life equals persecution. And I know that's not a very popular message to preach today. But the reality is it's true. For us as believers, we will face persecution in this life. What it's import, what's important to remember, though, is that the Lord promises to meet us in those moments of desperation and in those moments of great need. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says this, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then uh, Jesus says this to his disciples in Matthew 24. He says this, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus says this to his disciples in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Look, I don't mean to bum you guys out or bring a bunch of heavy things, but the reality is this. In the Christian life, we will face persecution. The Great Commission has always and will always invite persecution. Peter and John were brought before this council, this Jewish Supreme Court, the Sadducees and the Jewish religious leaders for healing a man who was lame from birth and preaching the gospel. So they were brought before this council for doing something good. They didn't do anything wrong, yet they found themselves in trouble. They found themselves facing persecution. The reality is this, in your Christian life, you are going to face persecution. And maybe tonight you're thinking, wait, hold on a second, wait, Pete. I thought that this life with Jesus was supposed to be easier, supposed to be more fun. He said, I've come that you might have life more abundantly. I thought it was supposed to be full of freedom. And look, all those things are true. Jesus did say that I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And life is full of joy and life is full of fun and life is full of pleasure in Christ but the Christian life is also full of persecution. And I would not be doing my job as a brother in the faith to you guys, my younger brothers and sisters in the Lord, if I wasn't telling you that. And let's be honest, though. The persecution we face in the United States is a little bit more like ego persecution. It's kind of like, hey, I don't really like you. You're stupid. You're a bigot. You're a Nazi. You voted for Trump. 
you're you're bigoted, you're you hate gay people, you you you're just you're you're legalistic. It's ego persecution. The persecution the early church was facing in the first century, it pales in comparison. Our persecution pales in comparison. They were tortured, they were beaten, they were murdered. Early Christians, the Christians in Rome, they were uh, dipped in, in tar and in oil, and they were um, literally, uh, they were put on poles and in posts, and they were put in the Emperor Nero's garden and lit on fire at night for his garden parties. There were uh, records of Christians in the early church in Rome who were wrapped in the skin of animals, and they were fed to wild dogs to be eaten alive. Uh, we know, obviously, it's the famous one that the Apostle Paul even faced the possibility of going to the Colosseum, right, and, and being, being tortured in the Colosseum, being fed to, you know, um, animals. And look, the early church faced this sort of persecution, but what we can have hope because we today are a part of the same church, the Lord protected the truth of his word. The Lord ultimately allowed for the gospel to still be furthered. And the Lord protected a lot of those early church believers. And so when we come to chapter 4, all of this persecution awaits the early church, but it's just beginning in chapter 4. So as Peter and John, they're being brought before this council in Jerusalem, and they are asked a question in verse 7. Will you look with me? John chapter, or excuse me, Acts chapter 4, verse 7. This is the question that they are asked. So they're brought before the Supreme Court. And let's pick it up in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or, what by, or by what name have you done this? So remember, in chapter 3, they're going to the temple to pray. And they met a lame man on the way, right? He asked for alms, held out his palm, and then Peter did say, silver and gold I have none, but such as I have I give to thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I just quoted a really amazing children's ministry song for those of you that caught that. But anyways, the point is, they're going to the temple, it's the hour to pray, to pray. there's a lame man. Again, they're filled with the Spirit, they've just come off of this beautiful encounter with the Holy Spirit in the upper room. And they're just, they're on fire and they see this man and they're led to heal him. He's, he's healed and they're there in the outer courts and they start preaching the gospel and the Sadducees, they don't like that. So they're brought before these guys and they're asked, hey, by what power or, or by what name have you done this? And Peter's answer is what we're going to look at tonight, okay? Peter's answer is what we're going to focus on. So let's read chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Let's pray one more time. Lord, as we look to your word, as we read these words, Lord, that are inspired by your spirit, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd open our minds, open our hearts, help us, Lord, to understand what you have, to, what you have for us tonight, Lord, through your word. And I pray, God, we walk away with a greater love for you, Lord, a deeper appreciation for you, 
And Lord, a, a hunger and thirst, Lord, to be used by you and to be filled, Lord, with your spirit. Lord, we look to you now. Open our eyes, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. If you're taking down notes tonight, the title of my message is this, Power, Power in the Midst of Persecution. Power in the Midst of Persecution. So Peter begins to respond to these guys. And the key to his response is found in verse 8. If you have a pen, if you have a highlighter, highlight this. In verse 8 where it says this, Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So as Peter begins to respond to these men, these Jewish religious elders, his response to them is a spirit-filled response. It's not a flesh-filled response. It's not a man-filled response. Rather, his response is one that is prompted by the Spirit of God. What's so interesting is that this is the same guy who 50 days or so prior to this event, when Jesus was put on trial, before the same men was out warming himself by a fire and denied Jesus three times. So this same guy, 50 days later, filled with the Holy Spirit, is empowered and is bold to speak truth with a fire within, a fire within him to speak boldness and truth to these religious elders. Guys, this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is the power of God. God is able to take us, ordinary men and women, and do extraordinary things. The Spirit of God was able to take Peter, who was timid in that moment at Christ's trial. And 50 days later, you see that transformation. He stands before the same council and boldly proclaims truth. The amazing thing about this moment that we're looking at is this is a fulfillment of something that Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of Luke. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And he's preparing his disciples for what life and ministry is going to look like when Jesus is no longer with them in the flesh. And he said this in verses 11 through 12 in Luke chapter 12. He says this, Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That is a fulfillment. Peter's response to these men is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. Guys, we can have confidence. When we stand before people who are persecuting us, people who are looking down on us, we can trust that the Holy Spirit will give us words to say. We can trust that the Holy Spirit will recall to remembrance in our minds exactly what is needed in the very moment. So what does Peter begin to say? In this moment, Peter turns the tables. He turns the tables on the Jewish council. Peter points out that he and John were being accused for doing something good. For doing something good, for healing a man who had been lame since birth. And and, and he points out that he's being accused by the very men who put Jesus to death. The most innocent man that has ever walked the earth, never did anything wrong. These guys, these Jewish religious elders, they were the ones that put to death Jesus at the cross. An innocent man. 
Yet Peter and John were being accused by them for doing something good. The irony, the hypocrisy is insane. Peter and John, basically in our vernacular, in our language, they're saying this. You're accusing us? Who are you? Who are you guys? You're the one that killed Jesus, the innocent son of God. And this is where the tables turn. You see, Peter is speaking to a group in Judaism known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they have a problem with everything that's taking place with Peter and John. And why? Why do they have a problem? The Sadducees were the liberals of the time, okay? They were, they were totally liberal in their thinking. Jesus' greatest enemy in his public ministry was, can someone tell me? Who is Jesus' greatest enemy? It starts with a PH. <laughs> Pharisees. Okay, they were like the most conservative, like, they believed the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in miracles. They believed in everything. The, the Sadducees, however, they only believed in, in the partial inspiration of the Old Testament scripture. They didn't believe in the miraculous. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they have a problem. Why do they have a problem? Because standing before them is a man who has been healed. A miracle is standing before them. And they don't believe in miracles. And then Peter and John, empowered by the Spirit, are saying, you want to know how this happened? This was made possible by the power of Jesus Christ, who was resurrected from the dead, whom you crucified. So they are challenging the very core of these men's belief system. And I bet at this moment, in Peter's response, there was an eerie silence. I can only imagine that as Peter says these things to these men, they, their world, their very core is shaking. Everything they believe is being challenged. Peter is turning the accusation towards the Jewish religious authority. So let's pick it up. Let's continue in verses 11 through 12. Read with me. Peter continues to say this in verse 11. Now this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Pause there. So Peter turns the tables on these Jewish religious elder council turns the tables on them, and he continues to, man, speak amazing truth, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he quotes here in verse 11, Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Does someone want to look up Psalm 118 and read it to me? Can someone do that for me? Psalm 118. So in verse 22, he's quoting the psalm. It says this, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, so why is he quoting Psalm 118? This is why. Psalm 118 is a picture of Jesus. When he says the chief cornerstone, it's a picture of Jesus. Now, I need you guys to listen to me real quick. There is a story there's a story, it is believed, that when Solomon's temple was being built, 
Okay, and we know Solomon's temple, right? It was the most glorious temple that had ever been built by the Jewish people. Solomon's temple. And as it was being built there in Jerusalem, normally when you would build a building, you would quarry all of the stones on site. But they decided to quarry off-site and bring in the stones from somewhere else. And so here's, here's how the story goes. They're, they're constructing this temple, and it was the, the stones were so precise that you couldn't stick a knife blade between the cracks. Like, they were so precise that you couldn't even penetrate the cracks between the stones as they were placed together for the temple mount. But here's the thing. As the story goes, they build the temple and they get to the final piece and they're missing the capstone. They're missing the cornerstone, the most important part of the temple. And they begin to look at each other and wonder why the cornerstone is missing. They contact the quarry. They ask the quarry, did you send a chief cornerstone? The men who are working there diligently respond and say, no, we sent the cornerstone a long time ago. And they realize that the cornerstone, it didn't look like the other stones. It didn't fit that way in the building process. And so they cast it into the Kidron Valley right below the temple in Jerusalem. And the story goes this, they realized that they had cast the cornerstone because it was different because it didn't look the same as all the other stones. And guys, this is a picture of Jesus. What Peter is telling the council is this. You rejected your Messiah, Jesus, because he looked different than you thought he would. And I'm not talking about an outward appearance. I'm talking about what he taught. I'm talking about what he represented. You thought that the Messiah would be a political Messiah. You thought the Messiah would overthrow Rome. But Jesus came to bear the government upon his shoulders, the government of his kingdom, a serving king, a king that would lay down his life for his subjects, not rule over them. And so the Jewish men, they rejected Jesus because he looked different. So when Peter quotes Psalm 118, he is challenging the very core, again, of what these Sadducees believe. And then in verse 12, he says this, look, there is, there is no salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What Peter is saying is this, there is power in Jesus. There is power to heal. There is power to save. There is power to redeem. You rejected him, but there's still power. You can still be saved. I mean, Peter is preaching the gospel to, to these men even under trial, for preaching the gospel. He can't stop preaching the gospel. Why? Because he's on fire for Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. But the reality is this. Yes, there's power in Jesus. There's power to heal. There's power to redeem. There's power to restore. But that power only reaches and affects those who call upon his name, not those who reject him like these religious men had. Peter's giving them an opportunity to respond to the gospel still. So let's read verses 13 through 17 and let's continue to unpack this story. So what takes place? The aftershock. Peter has responded, man. He is just fire. Drop the mic. I'm trying to relate to you guys. You're not laughing. Anyways. He's... And he's bold, he's empowered, he's led by the Spirit, he's challenging them, he finishes, and then let's see what happens, verses 13 through 17. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. 
they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they're like, get out of here, guys. They conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through, through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So after Peter boldly speaks to this council, he shares the gospel, he challenges these religious leaders. These men ask Peter and John to step outside. They need some room. It's getting a little too hot in the kitchen. They needed a break. They needed to digest what had just been said to them. And why is that? Why did they need to talk amongst themselves? Why did they need to take a moment? Why did they need to ponder what had just been said? Well, the key to that answer is in verse 13. Let's read it again. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You see, they saw boldness. They saw with their own eyes a holy boldness from the Spirit of God. It was apparent. It was all over Peter and John, like clothing. And then it says that they perceived, they thought, wait, they don't have any education. They didn't go to seminary. How do they know these things? They realized that they had a deep knowledge of the scripture. And then it says this, they realized that they had been with Jesus. Ah, there's the answer. They realized that this boldness, this knowledge was a result of a relationship with Jesus, having been with Jesus, and it's a result of Jesus' power. Jesus has the power to change lives, amen? The greatest witness for the gospel, the greatest witness for the reality of God is a changed life. I'm gonna say that again. The greatest witness for the gospel, the greatest witness for the reality of God is a changed life. And Peter and John, they had been changed. It was evident. It was clear. They were bold. They had no formal education. And that doesn't mean they were stupid. Because here's the thing, and this really bothers me. The disciples weren't stupid. They were not dumb. They were fishermen. Not only were they fishermen, but they were fishermen in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which was one of the main trade routes from the Middle East to Israel. So they met all sorts of people, all different uh, nationalities, languages, customs. They were very cultured men. They were not stupid. And by the way, fishermen were the man's men of the day. Like these guys were hardcore, hardcore guys. So they weren't stupid. I'm just saying that bothers me when people say they were stupid. They were just uneducated in the sense that they hadn't gone to rabbinical, basically rabbinical seminary. They weren't formally trained. A lot of pastors, they, we, you know, we go to seminary. I would love to go to seminary. 
I just need the time and money. But anyways, I'd love to go to seminary one day. And that's something where you receive a deep formal training. And so these men, they realize, no, you know what? Peter and John, they have no formal training in seminary or in really the law and the prophets. So how do they know so much? And it's because of Jesus. And they realized they had a relationship with Jesus and the power of God had rubbed off on these men. They were changed. They were transformed. And look, when God moves in powerful ways, it is impossible to deny. You cannot deny when God moves in, in, in powerful ways. Look what verse 14 says. Look at this again. It says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They literally had nothing to say. So they take a moment to talk amongst themselves. They take a moment to try and figure out what the next step is for Peter and John. And then they decide, hey, you know what? We're going to severely threaten them. We're going to threaten their life. So let's see how that goes. Verses 18 through 21. Let's read this. So they called them and commanded them, not to speak at all, <laughs> nor teach in the name of Jesus. Not to speak at all. Hmm. Interesting. Nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, you guys are idiots. <laughs> I'm just trying to make sure you guys are awake. Anyways, but Peter and John answered them and said to them, whether, whether it is right in the sight of God <laughs> to listen to you, more than to God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. I love what Peter and John say in response to their threats. They tell the men in the council that they are more concerned about God's approval than the approval of man. Basically, they're saying this. We don't care whether you think it's right or not. We love Jesus so much, we can't stop talking about what he's done. They were more concerned about the courts of heaven than the courts of Israel. They decided to do what is right to not keep silent, to not suppress the gospel truth. They decided to let their light shine. They decided to do what is right, not what's safe, not what's popular, not what's comfortable, but what is right. And that is so important for us today. You and me. Do we live like that? Do we care more about what our peers think than what God thinks? Does the persecution we face stop us from being who God has called us to be? In this passage of scripture, I see two men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bold, for the name of Jesus. And these men, as you're going to see in the book of Acts, they go on to change the world. And I don't want to end this message with some corny, you could change the world. <laughs> but 
It's true. You can change the world because you serve the God who has overcome the world. Remember this. God takes ordinary people and he uses them to do extraordinary things. And it's by the power of his spirit. The truth of the matter is this. You, my friends, I may not know all of you, but I'm glad you're here. You will face persecution. You will face trials. Jesus said to his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But I pray that you would find encouragement in this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The spirit indwelling is greater than he that is in the world. There's no weapon formed against you that will prosper or stand because you are a child of God. I encourage all of you here to think deeply as you leave this place tonight about what these men said, about what they did for Jesus. And I want you to think about your own life. I want you to challenge yourself. Am I asking the Holy Spirit to use me? Am I asking the Holy Spirit to empower me and change me and use me to change my school and change my friends for the glory of God. Because I believe that your relationship with God, our relationship with God is a great adventure. It's the greatest adventure. The book of Acts is full of adventures, full of stories, powerful stories, true stories, historical accounts of things that took place because men and women were submitted to Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God, and bold, bold to further the kingdom of God and to make an impact on earth. It's not always going to be popular to do what is right. It's not always going to be safe to do what is right. And you want to know what? It's not always going to be comfortable But remember this, one day you will stand before the almighty God of heaven. You will stand before him. And how much better would it be to stand before him knowing that you did everything you could to further his kingdom on earth? How much better would it be? I'm not saying he's going to love you more. He loves you so much. He loves you so much right now. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you live lives like these disciples, God's gonna give you more favor or that you're gonna get rich. That's all I'm saying. Actually, if you live lives like these disciples, you're actually gonna get more persecuted. You're gonna be hated more. But the reality is, is this. The kingdom of God is so much greater than the things of this earth. So what is right is not always going to be safe. What is right is not always going to be popular. And what is right is not always going to be comfortable. But these men here in this story, they didn't care about what was popular or what was safe or what was comfortable. They cared about honoring the name of Jesus Christ. 
And the religious leaders there, they were challenging the very name of Jesus. And these men were bold to defend it. These men were bold to stand up for the truth. And these men were bold to further the kingdom of God. And I pray that this story would inspire you, that this book would inspire you, that you would remember that our extraordinary God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Our extraordinary God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He always has and he always will. He uses the humble, he uses the weak, he uses the lowly. He exalts them in due time. He lifts them up and he uses them for his glory to further his kingdom. So I pray that you would leave this place tonight inspired and motivated to be those men and women. And I, (laughs) I need this just as much as you do. I need this just, you know how many times, sorry, I'm almost done. Do you know how many times there has been a clear opportunity for me to share the gospel and I'm not even being persecuted and I'm just like, oh, well, you know, I got to eat my sandwich and uh, like so many times, maybe not my sandwich, but other opportunities. I just think we could all challenge ourselves, including myself, more, to be more bold. Because I think we say this a lot, and I see this a lot today. Well, you know, it's just we need, you know, we need some love. And it's true. We do need love. But is it, is it loving to not speak the truth when there is such desperation for truth these days? Is it unloving to say, you know what, Um, maybe tomorrow, maybe next time I see that person. And again, I don't wanna do the cliche because it's always done. There may not be a next time. (laughs) I don't know, there may not be a next time. And I'm not trying to scare you guys into like every person you see, do you know Jesus? You know, (laughs) no, 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 wait, hold on. That's not what I'm telling you. Evangelism cannot be forced. Evangelism must be spirit led. What did I say in the beginning of the message? The key to the book of Acts is chapter two, when they were empowered with the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. That is the whole book of Acts, being led by the Spirit. So be led by the Spirit. When you're talking to someone at school and they're like this, man, Chandra, I don't think there's anyone here named Chandra. Chandra, gosh, my family life is so hard. I have no answer. I don't know it's true and I'm depressed. I feel like I'm gonna kill myself and I'm not eating and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. What a clear opportunity to say, you know what, Chandra, I'm so sorry to hear that. But you want to know what? I believe that we can have hope in this life because of Jesus Christ. That is an opportunity. And if you're in those moments, if your heart is racing, there's a fire burning within you. That's the moment to share. Okay? So there's an important distinction. Because again, evangelism cannot be forced. It must be led. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. Peter and John were led to heal the lame man. You want to know what's crazy? We know that this lame man, he had been there for 40 years, right? Do you think Jesus walked by that that lame man during his public ministry? 40 years, Jesus went into the temple all the time to pray. How many times do you think Jesus passed that man? 
Like, probably a lot. Did Jesus choose to heal him? No. No, but Jesus knew that there would come a day when his disciples would be led by by the Spirit of God to pray for healing over that man. So remember this, God's timing is the best timing. You can't force anything. God's timing is best. Be led by the Spirit of God. And I encourage you guys, when you wake up in the morning, when you wake up in the morning, I try to do this and sometimes I forget. It's not a religious duty. I'm not trying to be religious. I just believe this is honest and I believe this is important. But I really try and pray this before I do anything. Holy Spirit, fill me afresh today. Lead me today, please. Because I, left to myself, will screw everything up. I will. So I encourage you guys. God, our extraordinary God, uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things by the power of his spirit. So let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, so much for the book of Acts, Lord. These accounts, Lord, these accounts that you've given us, Lord, to inspire us, to motivate us, Lord, to open our eyes to your power to change lives, your power to heal, your power to redeem, your power to use people, to reach people. And Lord, I pray that we would learn, Lord, from Peter and John in this chapter, Lord, that we would be bold, Lord, in the face of persecution, that we would recognize that the power, power in the midst of persecution comes from you, Lord, comes from your spirit. Lord, I pray just right now, and maybe you're here tonight and you would just like to open your hands in a posture of prayer. Lord, I just pray with our hands open, Lord, in a posture to receive. I pray, Lord, you would fall afresh on us, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill us afresh. I pray, God, that you and you alone would empower us to do the work that you've called us to do. We want to be men and women that honor you and glorify your name and are used to further your kingdom on this earth. So fill us afresh, Lord, and use us in